This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 9th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The struggles of Native American tribes have never truly ended. Today, the federal government owns lands on which tribes reside, and the restrictions on the uses of those lands continue to put up hurdles to development. Adam Krippel is a visiting professor at Southern University Law Center. We spoke last month. We understand rights, property rights, to be things that uh, are, you know, not just one right, but several rights that we can combine and use some of and not use others. With respect to uh, the rights of uh, Native American tribes, what property rights do they not have, really, with respect to their property? Uh, Well, trust land, um, the federal government owns it. So the federal government owns title to the land, whereas the tribe holds beneficial use. Uh, So that means if you want to do something on uh, trust land, you have to get approval from the federal government. So, for example, if you want to drill for oil on Indian land or do some other project, uh, in most jurisdictions, it takes about four steps before you can get approval. In Indian country, it takes about 49 steps. So there's immense levels of bureaucracy. Um, Building off of that, if you want to get a mortgage on your trust land, uh, you have to get the approval of the Secretary of the Interior, uh, which obviously is pretty difficult to do. So it makes just basic things so much more complicated. Okay, so when we think of uh, of the various uh, Native American tribes that have decided to put up casinos, what 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 leads into that decision? It's the same obstacles you would face, perhaps even more. But with casinos, you're going to be making a lot of money theoretically. So it makes going going through all those hoops worth it. Whereas you're opening up, say, a little mom and pop gas station or you know, grocery store, it's probably not worth the time and energy to go through all the red tape. All right. So with respect to casinos, a lot of communities don't want casinos in their communities. And maybe that's why uh, certain tribes have decided this is a great way to go. But in terms of other kinds of economic development uh, that you would want to have in any kind of community, uh, how does this federal ownership uh, on these uh, trustee lands you know, how does that stand in the way of the kinds of development that we that Native Americans themselves would love to see and uh, presumably the rest of the U.S. would like to see as well? Uh, well, the same thing. There's just all sorts of bureaucracy. If you want to do something, you can't just do it. You have to get approval from the federal government usually. And there's the further complication, although Indian country is usually exempt from state regulation, say if you want to drill for oil on Indian land, the state can often tax that. So this means you have the state taxing it, which effectively prevents the tribe from taxing the enterprise. So this means the tribe can't generate um, economic revenue the same way most other governments can, which forces tribes to create enterprises like casinos to fund their government operations. What has to change? I mean, given the nature of federal law, a lot of that's probably not going to change. So what can change most easily in order to give uh, these groups and the lands that they uh, possess uh, more use and more productivity for themselves? Well, the simplest thing would be just uh, get the federal government out of the way. Um, you know, s- tribes are sovereign nations under federal law, and that's been the case since uh, 1832. The Supreme Court said as much. So basically, just get the federal government out the way. If a tribe wants to do something, they shouldn't have to call the Secretary of the Interior to get approval before they build a building or cut down a tree or drill for oil. If they want to do something as sovereigns, they should be able to do it. It's a really simple fix. However, it's probably not going to happen anytime due due to lots of political antics that go into the way. 
Then further complicating it, you have states often don't want tribes doing stuff for whatever reason. They try to tax them and impose other barriers that make it more difficult. Uh, for example, the Santee Sioux were going to open up a marijuana reservation a couple years ago. And marijuana is illegal in all forms or fashion in South Dakota. So the South Dakota attorney general threatened to raid the place, get the feds to raid it, and barricade all the entries to the reservation and just create a huge hullabaloo. And how the Santee Sioux had it set up, marijuana wouldn't be able to leave a specific room. So there's just lots of red tape that's completely unnecessary and outside forces. If you just let the tribes be, self-government's been the official U.S. policy since 1970 for tribes. So if the U.S. was serious about that, just let the tribes do what they want on their land. If it's bleeding off, uh, like say you're drilling for oil or some environmental effects that's causing uh, third-party issues, that's a separate story. But if it's not, if it's contained exclusively to the reservation, then it doesn't make sense to have all these outside forces overlooking the tribes. Now, is part of uh, part of that bureaucracy that you described, is that part of what is keeping a lot of capital out of these areas? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's very difficult to start a business because if you can't get a mortgage, where do you get the capital to start the business? So it's extremely difficult for that reason. And even if you can, there's all sorts of jurisdictional confusion. Uh, for example, a 2016 Supreme Court case, Dollar General v. Mississippi, Choctaw. So Mississippi Choctaw has been very successful at recruiting businesses to its reservation. Uh, since the 1970s, it's transformed itself from one of the poorest communities in the U.S. to a pretty well-off community. So Dollar General approached the tribe and wanted to build a store on the reservation. And pursuant to doing that, it had to sign a contract consenting to Mississippi Choctaw jurisdiction. Well, a Dollar General employee molested a tribal child. So the family brought suit in tribal court. Dollar General contested the tribal court's jurisdiction. And this went all the way to the Supreme Court, despite the fact that Dollar General had consented to the tribe's jurisdiction. And under federal Indian law, that's one of the clear bases for tribal jurisdiction. If you consent to it, there's not really much to argue. However, the Supreme Court split four to four. But for Scalia's death, Indian law might be rewritten. So there's just lots of uncertainty surrounding Indian law. Like that's just one of those things. You don't know which court to bring a legal action in, state, federal, or tribal. We're talking about economic development. So you would expect that, uh, you know, a general level of safety is one of the things that helps people decide that certain investments are worth it. How does uh, criminal law vary between uh, non Native American jurisdictions and the rest of the country? Uh, in most jurisdictions, or in all jurisdictions in the world, it's a really straightforward task. If you commit the crime in a given territory, that sovereign can prosecute you. It's not so simple in Indian country. So if a crime's committed, you have to ask four questions. Where was the crime committed? In Indian country or outside of Indian country? This seems like a straightforward thing. But Indian reservations were allotted in the 1880s to 1934. So now you have what are checkerboards, essentially. You have trust land interspersed with non-Indian fee land. Tribes have criminal jurisdiction over the fee or excuse me, the trust land. But if it's fee land, then the state can have jurisdiction. So police literally have to patrol the reservation with the GPS to figure out whether they have jurisdiction or not. So it's just totally nonsensical. And that's not even clear enough. So there was a murder in 1999, for example, and the, uh, it's about to go to the Supreme Court. The only issue in the case is whether the land is in fact Indian country 
or it belongs to the state of Oklahoma. They know who committed the crime. They know the victim. All of that's clear. The only question is the status of the land. So policing is incredibly difficult. Then you also have to ask, what's the race of the victim? What's the race of the offender? So tribes have no jurisdiction over non-Indians as the general rule. So if two non-Indians commit a crime in Indian country, the state has jurisdiction. But if it's a non-Indian committing a crime against an Indian, then the feds have jurisdiction exclusively. Whereas if it's an Indian commit a crime against a non-Indian, both the tribe and the feds have jurisdiction. So it's just totally complicated. And then you also have to ask the question, who is an Indian? Does Elizabeth Warren count as an Indian? It's very tricky. Then you also have to know what is the crime. So it just makes no sense. You call the cops. So that was one of the big things with the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act in 2013. This allowed tribes to prosecute non-Indians in certain limited circumstances. Because since 1978, you would have non-Indian husbands beat their wives and call the cops on themselves because the cops couldn't arrest them. It was just a total farce of law enforcement that created huge public safety problems in Indian country. And obviously, if you don't know if you can call the cops, or you can call the cops, but if they're not sure whether they can arrest somebody or prosecute them, this is going to cause lots of law enforcement difficulties and create an environment where you don't want to set up business. Are there persistent questions about uh, who owns what land? You said if, the, if, the, if there's a question about a certain piece of territory being deemed either uh, Native American or uh, a part of a state, is that something that is a persistent question? Uh, yes, sir. That's a pretty frequent issue. It, it's, they had a case in 2016 that went to the Supreme Court, and they've had quite a few. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty because it's not clear. So in 1887, the Supreme Court, or excuse me, Congress decided it was going to quote help civilize the Indians by passing the Dawes Act and supposedly convert all the Plains Indians into farmers. Uh, the problem is, whenever it broke up the reservations, it gave the Indians all the land that was unsuitable for farming. It didn't give them any farm tools either. So that obviously didn't work. Uh, but the effects are still felt because that's how the reservations look. It's not just a simple square. It's more like a checkerboard now in many cases. And then there's often questions, did Congress intend to diminish the reservation is the key question. If it did not intend to diminish the reservation, then it's still Indian land. And how do you determine that? It's You look to the history, but it's very subjective and tribes aren't always getting the best breaks when it comes to Indian law. So economic development is a significant challenge for uh, Native American tribes and their uh, sovereign, although, although that seems like a, a fairly disputable term given what you've said already. Uh, but what, what do we know about the economies of uh, these, these tribes before uh, you know, the 1800s? In the 1700s. Yeah, so prior to European contact, tribes, well, there are lots of great diversity amongst the tribes, so it's difficult to generalize. But what we do know is that they all traded. They developed trade language. For example, in the Southeast, Mobilian was a common trade language. In the Northwest, it was Chinookan. Um, Europeans would say back in the day, if you could learn one of the trade languages, you could travel across North America without an uh, interpreter because all the Indians would speak the trade language. They wanted to facilitate commerce. They developed laws to this effect, intellectual property laws, so you could sing certain songs. Only individuals could own those songs, for example. They developed uniform systems of measurement. Um, they also owned the land, so like Choctaws would have usufructs to the farming plots they used. In the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Nupta tribes would actually own specific fishing spots in the ocean. So property rights were a thing, markets were a thing, well before Europeans arrived. 
Adam Krapel is a visiting professor at Southern University Law Center. You can subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 